Hot Mess. Sponsored by Mason Hazen Curran, experts in renewable energy. Find out more on mhc.ie forward slash energy 22. If you want to give yourself a case of itchy feet, there really is nothing quite like looking at the vapour trails coming out of the back of a jet plane, crisscrossing a clear blue sky. Some people look at them, though, and they see conspiracy. They say the government is trying to give us COVID-19, the government is trying to vaccinate us against COVID-19, and so on. Here's the uncomfortable bit, though. Vapour trails or contrails are actually at the centre of a conspiracy of silence about the climate damage that aviation is doing. They've hid behind a veil of secrecy because no government has acted to lift that veil. The responsibility of the industry is to be honest and there's an awful lot of distraction being thrown in the air. If left unchecked, scientists now believe that aviation is toxic enough to make the goal of holding warming to 1.5 degrees impossible. It would induce about 0.1 degree of warming by 2050 and something between 0.2 to 0.4 degrees by the end of the century. And now a new study shows that emissions from planes are doing anywhere from twice to three times more global warming than airlines or governments are acknowledging. I'm Philip Boucher-Hayes and this is Hot Mess. Episode 15, Why Are We Still Flying? To borrow a phrase from Jennifer Aniston, here's the science bit. Airplanes run on jet fuel or kerosene, and when you burn it, you create carbon dioxide. What mainly comes out is carbon dioxide and water vapor, H2O. That H2O, of course, is injected into the atmosphere. We call the water vapour contrails, short for condensation trails. But on this occasion, the conspiracy theory's preferred name, chemtrails, may be a bit more accurate, because there's a lot of other stuff apart from water and carbon dioxide coming out of the back of a jet. There's a little bit of extra stuff in there too, like nitrogen and sulphur. The sulphur will react with the oxygen to form sulphur dioxide. Sulphur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, soot and water vapour itself, all of which warm the atmosphere. So emissions from planes have been divided into two groups. The CO2 that comes from burning the jet fuel and the non-CO2 emissions. All the other stuff that everyone has been ignoring. When governments and airlines calculate how much aviation is warming the planet, they only look at CO2 and not the non-CO2 emissions because there has been such uncertainty about them until now. And these non-CO2 effects are, for example, emissions of greenhouse gases and also aerosol particles that affect the atmospheric composition and also affect cloudiness. Nikki Brizola is one of the authors of a very alarming paper published earlier this year, but it hasn't received widespread public attention. Her group reviewed all that was known about the impact of these non-CO2 emissions, and they concluded that they are significantly worse than the carbon dioxide that planes create. 
the effects of carbon dioxide are quite certain on the other end. And we estimate that they probably um, account for around one third up to 50% of the of the total impact of aviation. And, so does that mean that we are ignoring or not paying attention to half of the warming potential of flying? Yeah, this is exactly the, the magnitude, or even more than that, <laughs> that we are actually ignoring, because exactly our estimates now of the magnitude of non-CO2 effects range between 40 to 80%. In English, the way that emissions from aviation are counted completely ignores half, perhaps two-thirds or more, of the climate damage being done by planes. This would be like looking at road deaths and only counting those that happen when people don't wear seatbelts and ignoring speeding, ignoring drink driving, wouldn't it? Yeah, basically, yes. If we were to do nothing with aviation emissions and to continue business as usual, what kind of contribution would they make to warming by the end of the century? It seems that if aviation continues experiences the current rates of growth, it would induce about 0.1 degree of warming by 2050 and something between 0.2 to 0.4 degrees by the end of the century. And while this not might seem like a lot, uh, we know that to achieve the Paris Agreement's um, targets, we only have something between 0.3 and 0.80 degree left on our budget. So we would basically use up a lot of that budget just so because aviation of on its own has the potential, if it does not change its ways, to use up half of the remaining carbon that we have available to us if we want to stay below 1.5. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Or even more. We are currently already committed to basically 1.2 degree of warming, which means if we continue flying, we would for sure overshoot the 1.5 degree target and, uh, and we might even get half of the budget left on the 2 degree target. Flying is doing at least twice as much climate damage as we thought, and in the more extreme models could, if it is unchecked, be single-handedly responsible for pushing the planet past 1.5 degrees of warming. Now look, my first reaction, probably the same as yours, that's mad, it can't be right. But this paper was peer-reviewed and published in a reputable scientific journal. Still though, it's such a dramatic statement I felt that it was only responsible to get another expert view here before making an entire programme about this issue. Uh, it's been well known, certainly for at least a decade, that a significant proportion of the climate impact arising from aviation was from non-CO2 effects. Professor Barry McMullen, Dean of Engineering in DCU, says that the aviation industry has been very successful at setting the agenda. An awful lot of what percolates into the media is mediated via the industry. So it has been convenient for the industry to not talk about non-CO2 effects, to just focus exclusively on CO2 effects. 
uh, and just not mention the non-CO2. But as Nikki Brazola's paper says, the non-CO2 effects are at least the same again as those that come from burning jet fuel. And while there is legitimate scientific debate about exactly how much greater than zero it is, uh, everybody pretty well has agreed that it's definitely greater than zero. It's a net increase in warming arising from non-CO2 effects. Probably, I mean, middle-of-the-road estimates roughly comparable to CO2 effects. Where to go next with this information? Well, Ireland's airlines. So, folks, your business is doing two, perhaps three times as much damage as we thought previously. What's your plan? I shared the findings of this study with the CEO of Aer Lingus, Lynn Embleton, and of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary. Both said that they didn't want to give me an interview on the subject. Not all airlines. Some airlines have been more transparent and are starting to take action in this area. I can point to Lufthansa in Germany, who has begun cooperating with researchers to better quantify um, these non-CO2 effects. Um, So I think Ryanair and Aer Lingus have been a little late to the game on this. That's Andrew Murphy. Um, But it's certainly an opportunity for them to catch up and be more transparent um, into the type of fuel they're using. He is a member of the government's Climate Change Advisory Council and an expert on aviation emissions. He says that many airlines have known about the non-CO2 emissions problem for decades and have not only ignored it, but have also obstructed research on the issue by not revealing what exactly is in their jet fuel. There's not much transparency as to what's in airline fuel. Um, And airlines haven't been particularly forthcoming in disclosing or making public um, what are the particles in their fuel. If they were to do so, we would have a much more precise understanding of aviation's non-CO2 effects. That's a very stark contrast, isn't it, compared to the level of transparency that we demand of farmers now and we want to know exactly what it is that they're spreading on their land and in what amounts and at what time of year. And you're saying that the airline industry has been able to hide behind a veil of secrecy? They've hid hid behind a veil of secrecy because no government has acted to lift that veil. If you go into a car forecourt and stock up on petrol or diesel, you know there's limits in what's in that fuel. There isn't the same transparency or regulation as to the limits of what's in aircraft fuel. It all sounds a little bit kind of big tobacco 1960s, 1970s in its strategy. Are the airlines aware of what the science is saying or would they be able to legitimately claim, well, we didn't actually know how bad the impact of our industry was? The issue of non-CO2, climate aviation's non-CO2, has been around since at least the late 90s in an IPCC report on this issue. They've known about it for decades and the science is getting more and more firm on how devastating the impact is. But the focus of the CEOs of Ryanair and Aer Lingus is on growth and expansion. We might take a a slight dip down, but we're going to get back. We're going to get back on a growth trajectory. Ryanair, for one, wants to go from 150 million passengers a year pre-pandemic to 225 million by 2026. In every past recession, we've grown stronger and faster because people don't stop flying in a recession. They get more price sensitive. So knowing what we now know, 
Where does aviation rank in the hierarchy of Europe's global warmers? So a rule of thumb is to double or treble. Um, so you could be saying somewhere more than 10% of the climate impact. Its impact is nothing like the 2.5% that airlines routinely point towards as their contribution to climate change. Correct. And in recent years, uh, we're understanding that these short-term warming effects are having a huge impact um, in tipping the planet's temperatures um, closer to some of these concerning uh, tipping points and, and above one5 He's referring there to the increased likelihood of hitting planetary tipping points, climate disaster cascades, if you will, if we pass 1.5 degrees. We're going to devote another whole programme in this series to that subject, so let's just park it for the moment, to place the other thing that he said in its proper context. Aviation's true climate impact the CO2 and the non-CO2 emissions when added together jumps the aviation sector in Europe up into third or fourth place in the polluters league table behind electricity generation and agriculture and perhaps on a par with or just below heavy industry but it is subject to none of the same restrictions as those sectors Can you explain to me then, if it is in the top five, even if it's in the top ten, why it is that aviation's emissions aren't regulated in the same way that agriculture or transports are? It's an excellent question. No country has taken responsibility and action has been outsourced to the UN Aviation Agency, which has not done a very good job at regulating these emissions. The second reason is industry have been very good at putting forward the idea that aviation is a so-called hard-to-decarbonize sector. And that gives regulators and governments to thinking, well, look, it's very, very difficult to reduce aviation emissions. There are no immediate solutions. So instead, we should just focus on buildings and cars and, and cows and all that. So it's been an effective strategy by the aviation industry, um, but it's resulted in the sector remaining unregulated, its emissions continuing to grow, and frankly, putting the sector's social license and its economic viability at risk. Social license, the ongoing acceptance of a company or an industry's business practices by the general public. In this case, what will the public demand of a largely unregulated industry operating for the profit of its shareholders when they become aware of how much danger it is placing the rest of us in? Back to Nikki Brazola, who says that there are only two ways out of this. One hasn't yet been invented and the other is very hard to swallow. There are only two ways of um, stabilizing the aviation contribution to warming. Either switch to like 90% of synthetic aviation fuels by 2050, which is incredibly fast, seeing the status of the technology, or like decrease demand by 2.5% each year from now until 2050. And like, that's a cumulative 2.5%. No, no, like every year 2.5%. 10% after four years, exactly. 20% after eight exactly. years. It would mean reducing the, the demand by a lot. And I mean, the current trend is of growth, growth in the aviation sector. So, so these efforts would really be massive. So how do we solve this? Plant trees or just stop flying? That's after the break.
Hot Mess, sponsored by Mason Hayes and Curry, your energy and ESG legal experts in Ireland. Find out more on mhc.ie forward slash energy22. In the last three or four years, airlines have done a lot to promote the idea that it's possible now to fly guilt-free. Isn't it a paradox that the love for this world that gets us out in it sometimes leaves behind the things that can harm it? That you can pay to have the emissions from your flight offset. And now, flight by flight, we can make a difference. But climate scientists and environmental activists have been not only openly sceptical of how much good they achieve, also pretty convinced that they do harm. If the inventor of offsetting had been, you know, unfortunately hit by a bus 25 years ago, I think the aviation sector, I think our climate would overall be better off as a result. We believe you shouldn't have to choose between seeing the world and saving it. Climate Change Advisory Council member Andrew Murphy believes that offsetting has impeded the search for a technical solution. You don't need to take action now. We'll just offset for a few more years until a better solution has come along. But while the airline industry have been offsetting, no one has really been putting in place the kind of measures which would actually reduce emissions. Sometimes the offsetting schemes do actually reduce or even extract carbon. Often they don't. Take Ryanair's voluntary donation of one euro for offsetting whenever you booked. Three years ago, when the scheme started, the airline gave €100,000 of this money to the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. was used to buy equipment, including the microphones that recorded this humpback whale song. Simon Barrow, the CEO of the research group, was then and still is incredibly grateful to Ryanair passengers whose donations they received. And the money they gave us, you know, was very generous and was very useful. Uh, We used it well, we bought a lot of equipment to support the project. Um, But yes, uh, it's always disappointing when the funding's not renewed because, you know, what can you achieve in, in 12 months? But yes, the money was pulled after a year. If you wanted to see any carbon actually offset by preserving marine habitat and increasing the whale population, that would have required multi-annual investment. So clearly this funding was part of the carbon offset uh, project. So ideally you would uh, use the funding to try and take carbon out of the atmosphere. And whales and dolphins might seem a long way from that objective. Will you permit me to be very transactional about this? Uh, You got 100,000, you put it to good use, you were very grateful to get it. Uh, What did Ryanair get out of this? Were you being used to greenwash them? Yeah, I mean, it's probably the, some of the easiest money we've ever got in terms of uh, what the, the funders have expected from us. Um, were we being um, labelled them to greenwash their, their business? Probably to a certain extent. You know, who benefited most? I don't know. Again, I asked Ryanair, did they want to explain what they were trying to achieve with this scheme or was it just greenwashing? But they said that nobody was available for interview. When speaking to the BBC, though, Michael O'Leary was unapologetic that the passenger-funded carbon offsetting scheme didn't actually offset any carbon. 
We're supporting whales and dolphins Whale in Ireland as project, well. Which has nothing and, to do with carbon and dioxide. And the bizarre one Which has nothing to do with carbon no, dioxide. No, but it's good for the environment. Well, I, mean, good, yeah. I don't well, think well, any of our customers would object to supporting whales and dolphins in Ireland. We all want offsetting to work. It would be a get-out-of-jail card. And some offset schemes are marginally better than others. But that's not the point, suggests Andrew Murphy from the Climate Change Advisory Council. I don't think we should get into discussing what's a good and a bad offset. Because anytime an airline relies on offsetting, it's not taking the kind of measures it needs to reduce its own emissions. Some will point to some higher quality offsetting, and perhaps they can exist in some circumstances. But it's not doing the job, which is to stop airlines burning kerosene, which is heating the atmosphere. So how long will it be before there's a climate-friendly alternative to jet fuel? That is what the industry is pinning its hopes on. Aer Lingus CEO Lynn Embleton has promised that her company will transform itself and become more sustainable in just a few years. If we sat here in a, uh, a few years from now, it'll be... It'll be an aviation industry that is still absolutely fundamental, I think, to society. It's a real force for good, but it will be a one that's made huge progress on sustainability. One of her predecessors at Aer Lingus and the current boss of IATA, the industry representative body, Willie Walsh, recently dismissed concerns that passengers might have about aviation's contribution to the climate crisis. Being able to fly and being able to do it in a sustainable way. There's, there's no contradiction there because the industry will achieve it. You should not feel ashamed uh, of taking a flight. There isn't a contradiction between uh, flying and uh, addressing the environmental challenge. So is the industry tackling the problem? Can we fly guilt-free? The responsibility of the industry, I think, is to be honest. Again, I asked Professor Barry McMullen to fact-check those two statements. In, in my view, the industry generally are not being really honest about this. There's an awful lot of distraction being thrown in the air. Uh, they have a plan, it's called Corsia. None of this really adds up. It makes a difference, you know, slightly less bad than it otherwise would be. But uh, the, the current trajectory of aviation is not on a pathway to anything like meeting the constraints of effective climate action. So the plausible route to radically reducing emissions from aviation in the very short term would be to have less aviation rather than more. Um, but it's, it's politically unpalatable, of course, but if, again, if you take the phrase climate emergency seriously, it might be something to be considered. And there is that unwelcome idea again. In the absence of proper government regulation, in the absence of the airlines curbing their own growth plans, in the absence of a not-yet-invented way of producing masses of eco-fuels cheaply, it falls to us as individuals to take climate action because government and industry have either applied accountancy tricks, long-fingered or greenwashed the problem. Unless you live in an extremely large house heated with oil, or unless you're eating several steaks a day, yes, 
uh, flying less um, is an important role to play. The biggest impact can be made by those who fly a lot. So sometimes there's there's an effort to focus a lot of attention on people who may take one annual flight a year. And I'm not saying everyone um, should feel free to fly once a year, but we do need to focus on, in particular, long-haul aviation emissions. We need to focus on people who fly for business when Zoom calls are possible and see what they can do um, to reduce their emissions. In a previous program in this series, we learned that there is a way to calculate the number of excess deaths by the end of the century from the fossil fuels that we burn today. If we apply that to the flights in and out of Ireland in a normal year, you get 1,353 excess deaths through climate change caused heat, drought, flooding and storms by the end of the century. That makes guilt-free flying a lot harder. If you found this programme interesting, there are others available to download. What is getting in the way of wind? Is now the time for nuclear? Does war in Ukraine mean that now is the time to drill for more gas in Korob? Hot Mess is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hot Mess, sponsored by Mason Hazen Curran, a powerhouse in legal advice in Ireland. Find out more on mhc.ie forward slash energy 22.